How many of you ever struggled to take your medicine as a kid? Did, you, did any of you ever have medicine that was difficult to take when you were a child? I was reading a little bit this weekend. In 1919, there was a certain kind of cough syrup in Canada called Buckley's Cough Mixture. It's been around since 1919, and there's... Kathy says it's gross. The slogan is that it tastes awful and it works. It's well known for its horrible taste, but yet it's immensely popular because it actually serves its purpose. It's made from, let me see if I can get this right, camphor, pine needle oil, and Canadian fir balsam gum. Doesn't that sound delicious? It's called by the locals the best-selling and the worst-tasting medicine you can have. Some have compared it to um, drinking used mouthwash, snail trail, or trash bag leakage. Now, you might ask yourself, why would a person take this medicine? Well, it's because it works. How many of you have ever been so sick that you don't care what kind of medicine you have? You're willing to take whatever it is so that you can start feeling better. You see, the worse the sickness is, oftentimes the more desperate we get to try to find something that's going to fix that problem. Oftentimes, the medicine that tastes the worst is often the most effective. It's painful and it's not fun to take sometimes, but it is what makes us healthy. And this morning, we're looking at a specific type of medicine or a specific thing that we need in the church that isn't fun and it's not great to talk about, but it is needed and it's called church discipline. Now, there's a lot of different ideas or opinions on what church discipline actually is. And I'll give you a definition for it in a moment before we move into our passage. But this morning, I think our passage is showing us what church discipline looks like in the local church. Now, you might say, Pastor, the people who sin in this passage die. And I'm not saying that if you sin in church and you're under church discipline, that that means you're going to die. That's a pretty extreme illustration that is being used in Acts 5, and I'll explain why I think that is in a moment. But I do think Luke is showing us in the life of the church how important it is to have church discipline and church restoration. If you remember where we've been in the book of Acts, we're seeing different problems that have happened outside of the church. We saw that in the past couple weeks with persecution. We're also seeing problems that the church has had on the inside, specifically this week with this sin issue that comes up. And let me say from the forefront that Acts can be both descriptive and prescriptive. What does that mean? Descriptive is describing what happens. I'm just telling you what happened in that certain situation and what the result actually was. Prescriptive is saying that I'm telling you to do something. So the passage is actually telling us how we should live. And while I think this passage is giving us some insights, some things to remember, some principles to apply, again, I think it is more descriptive. It's telling us what happened. I'm not saying that God is necessarily going to strike us dead in church like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not saying he's not going to do that, but this is more descriptive what actually happened in the process. Now, we get our theology of church discipline from Matthew 18, and it's very familiar to most, if not all of us. 
You're supposed to, if your brother sins against you, you, take, you go to them personally and privately. So someone sins, you catch them in sin, you go to them by yourself, and you try to restore them. And that is really the goal of church discipline, is restoration. It's not to call them out, it's not to embarrass them, it's not to make them look bad, but it is the restoration of a believer back to the body of Christ. That means as if they've really sinned against God, that they would repent and that they would be reconciled, restored back to the church body. If that doesn't work, you are to take another person with you, maybe a couple people with you to bear witness and hopefully so that that person would repent. And then after that, if they still don't repent, you take it to the church. The church asks them as a body to repent. If that person still will not, then they are excommunicated from the church. That's our theology of church discipline. That's where we really get this idea. But the goal of church discipline is not, again, to embarrass someone. It's not to have a big, long church meeting where we say everything bad they've ever done in their life. But it's because we love that person we hope that they're brother and sister in Jesus Christ, and we want to restore them back into fellowship if they've sinned. And we, In this series, we've been tracking how Christ is building his church, and that's really the title of the theme that I've given to Acts, is that Christ builds his church. In the chapter before Matthew 18, or two chapters before, Christ says that he is the one building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You might ask this morning, how is Christ building his church if there's all this sin and corruption going on that we see in Acts 5? What we're going to see is that Christ, even through church discipline, is building his church, and the church will not fail. And so what I, what I want us to see this morning is this. It's that the body of Christ needs church discipline in order to deal with the infection of sin. When sin has entered into the hearts and into the life of the congregation, the body of Christ needs church discipline in order to deal with sin. In the same way that you might need medicine in order to get over a cold, maybe you need more extreme medicine if it's really, really bad, the same way the church needs church discipline in order to deal with the infection of sin. Now, like I said earlier, I want to describe or define what church discipline is for us before we move into this passage. And I got this definition from a guy named Jonathan Lehman. He's a writer on church life and church body functions, things like that. And he says, church discipline is the process of correcting sin in the life of a congregation and its members. So church discipline is about restoring an individual who has sinned back to the body of Christ, but don't miss this, that it's actually about protecting and helping the whole body of Christ. What do I mean by that? If one person in the body of Christ is in sin, it affects the whole body. Even if you may not believe that, you may think my sin doesn't affect anyone else. No one knows about it. No one has talked to me about it. Sin in the life of one believer affects the rest of the body of Christ. And so it's up to the church, not in a spirit of hatred, not in a spirit of embarrassment, but in a spirit of love to restore that person back to the body of Christ. 
I would also add this, that church discipline really is accountability. That it doesn't always have to be reactive, but sometimes it is proactive and helping other believers not fall into sin in the first place. So with that being said, let's look at Acts chapter 5. First of all, in the first two verses, I want us to see a sinful scheme. A sinful scheme. Look with me at verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're introduced to two new characters in the early church in Acts 5.1. It's Ananias and Sapphira. Notice the conjunction there at the beginning of verse 1, the conjunction but. It connects us to the end of chapter 4. But what does chapter 4 talk about? If you remember last week, it was a summary statement about how the church has all these great things going for it. How there's a larger multitude that's being added day by day. How there's many signs and wonders being done. It says in verse 32, they were of one heart and soul. They had a unity. They had the same process of thinking, desires, purpose in life. Look down at verse 36. There's a specific example given that Luke is trying to contrast with Ananias and Sapphira. He says in verse 36, Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it down at the apostles' feet. So Ananias and Sapphira are being compared to Barnabas. What did Barnabas do? He sold part of his property and he gave all of the proceeds to the early church. Well, in verse 1, we seem to get the impression that that's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. In fact, there's nothing in verse 1 that we've seen so far that makes us think that they've done anything wrong. In fact, ironically, Ananias' name means gracious, or the Lord is gracious. And Sapphira means beautiful. But look with me at verse 2. It says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the earnings or some of the proceeds. So he sold this field, but he kept some of the money back for himself. Now we're going to work together to try to understand why this action was wrong. Did they have to sell their property? Well, no, they actually didn't. They could have kept their property. This wasn't socialism and this wasn't Marxism. This wasn't everybody sells everything and gives it to the poor. This wasn't a requirement for them to do. In fact, they could have sold the property and kept back some of it for themselves. So what is the problem here? Well, notice that first phrase in verse 2. He kept back some for himself, but it says, with his wife's knowledge. What does that indicate to us in verse 2? It's that his wife knows something that the rest of the church doesn't. His wife knows something is going on that the early church actually has no idea about. And what is that? 
that they've kept back this money. You see, they were saying that the money that they gave, the money that they got from this property, was only a certain amount. Now, we're not told what this amount actually was. It's possible that Luke didn't even know himself. But they said they got back one amount of money. They actually got back another. And they lied. They lied to the early church. Now, at the heart of all this is a question, why did Ananias and Sapphira lie to the early church? Well, think about this. The Christian community is known for their extreme generosity. In fact, Barnabas is thought of well by the early church. He's called the son of encouragement because of the money he gave. Look back at Acts 2 even. In Acts 2, in the first summary statement, in verse 45, it says, And they were selling their possessions and distributing them and the proceeds to all as any has had need. This has been something going on in the entire life of the early church. They're being generous. They're helping others. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted some of that fame. They wanted some of that pride and glory that the other early church Christians were getting. You see, at the heart of it, they had the wrong motivation. They were taking something that was meant to be loving and generous and good and edifying, and they were making it all about themselves. They were prideful. They wanted everyone to look at them and see, wow, look at how much money they gave. But what people didn't realize was they actually kept some of it back for themselves. They lied about how much money they actually got from this property. The early church's giving was about love and generosity, humility, and unity. But this lie actually threatened all of those things. They turned something that should have been generous and they made it selfish. They took something that was an act of humility and they made it prideful. They took something that should have unified the church. And now they're actually threatening to split the church apart. And look at the end of verse 2. They take this money and just like everyone else, what do they do with it? They lay it at the apostles' feet. It's at the apostles' feet that they showed their submission, their gratitude, their Authority that the apostles had. But yet, were they really respecting the apostles? Well, no, actually, they were lying to them. As we consider this, ask yourself a couple questions. What are my motivations for doing good deeds in the body of Christ? Why do I do good things? And I'm not telling you not to give in church, I'm not telling you not to help out with things. But am I doing it with a heart that truly wants to serve the body of Christ and serve God? Or am I doing it with a heart that wants everyone to look at myself and what am I actually doing? What am I doing to promote or detract from unity in Christ's body? Friends, the ends don't justify the means. Good works could legitimately help the body of Christ, but yet also hurt it 
with the wrong motivations. Look with me, secondly, at a considerable confrontation. Look with me at verse 3. Ananias, and this picks up right after they bring the gift and they lay it down at the apostles' feet. Sapphira is not there at this time. That's important for us to note. But it says in verse 3, But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What I find amazing is that Peter already knows. And how does Peter already know? There's a couple different possibilities, but I think it's most likely that the Holy Spirit indicated to Peter that Ananias and Sapphira had been lying about their giving. Again, this is a time when people are healing, when people are speaking in tongues or doing all these miraculous things. I think it's probably very probable, at least, that the Holy Spirit informed Peter and said Ananias and Sapphira are lying about how much money they actually got back from that property. And notice he's very harsh with Ananias. He's not going to be quite as harsh with Sapphira, but he's very harsh with how he deals with Ananias. His first question is, why has Satan filled your heart? How would you like that if you're talking to me after the service and you're telling me about something good you've done and I all of a sudden tell you, hey, why has Satan filled your heart? I don't think you'd probably be on good terms with me as your pastor if I said that to you. But also, there's probably this thought in Ananias' mind that maybe he's been found out. What does it mean that Satan filled his heart? Well, throughout Acts, we've been talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is something that can happen multiple times where a believer is filled with the Spirit. You remember, the Holy Spirit always indwells us, right? We always have the Holy Spirit through baptism. But when we're filled with the Spirit, we're enabled. We, it means that we're walking in the Spirit. We're doing what the Spirit wants us to do. And there are even times when we are um, giving the message of the Spirit. We're telling other people the Word of God. It's not some kind of special revelation or anything like that. But it means that you're being sanctified by the Spirit. It's what all the believers would want. But yet are Ananias and Sapphira filled with the Holy Spirit? No, they're actually filled with Satan. That is not what you want to have going on if you are a Christian. Now, I don't think this means that Ananias and Sapphira were demon-possessed, okay? I don't think that can happen to believers. And as I'll explain in a few moments, I do think Ananias and Sapphira were believers. So what do I think is going on here? Go to Matthew 16 for just a moment. We talked about this passage a couple weeks ago in Young Adult Bible Study, and I think it helps us understand even a little bit of what's going on here. I talked about earlier how Christ builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 21, we see Jesus explaining to his disciples that he would have to go and suffer and die on the cross. And notice how Peter responds in verse 22. It says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He says, You're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. None of this is going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? He says, Get behind me, Satan. 
for you are a hindrance to me. That means a stumbling stone. Peter goes from being Peter the rock to Peter the stumbling stone. You're going to make other people stumble, Peter. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man, rather than being used to help other people understand the things of God, the things that have spiritual insight, Peter is instead focusing on the things of man. So what do I think it was mean that they were filled with Satan? I don't think they were demon-possessed, but their actions were so fleshly that they were actually enabling a work of the devil. What does the devil want to do to the church? He wants to divide it. He wants to break it apart. He wants to cause believers to sin. This act of generosity in the church, of selling possessions and property and all these things, it was a really good thing for the church to be doing. But yet what is happening here? It's being perverted. It's being a cause of disunity. It is hurting the body of Christ. So Peter says, you're not filled with the spirit. You're filled with the devil. You're filled with Satan. He continues. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to lie to the Holy Spirit? You're trying to deceive not only the church, but if we recognize that the spirit works in the life of the church, then we have to recognize that if you sin against the church, if you lie to the church, you're actually lying to the Holy Spirit of God. Their lie was not just to other believers, it was to God himself. Now, is the Holy Spirit deceived by Ananias and Sapphira's lie? Well, no. And that's obvious because I believe the Holy Spirit told Peter that they were the ones who were lying. So the Holy Spirit wasn't actually deceived, but they did try to lie to him. And then he calls out his sin. He identifies what happens. He says, you kept back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, again, they didn't have to give all of the proceeds. But in verse 4, Peter gets specific and he helps us to understand why was this such a big deal? Look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Meaning this, you didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to give up your property. You didn't have to give them this money at all. But they chose to sell it and that was a good thing. That was something that would help the body of Christ. And it says, after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? You could have done what you wanted to with money. You could have given 100%, 75%, 50%. You didn't have to lie about it. But the heart of the issue is this. It's that Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like they had given everything, all that they had in this great act of generosity, when in reality they were being selfish with their money. He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Why is it that you've chosen to do this evil? He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. This sin of deceits was not a sin just against their brothers and sisters in Christ, but it was a sin against God. Now notice what happens to Ananias, and this is where it gets really Kind of crazy for us to understand. It says in verse 5, 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He dies. He immediately dies. Now, there's a lot of questions as to why did he die? Did he have shock? You know, some people that are being found out like that, they have shock and maybe they have a heart attack and die at that point. Did something else happen? Well, no, he died because the Spirit of God said he was going to die in that moment. Now, again, this isn't always the punishment for sin. This is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And the question that we have is, why? Why did they have to die after their sin? If you think about it, yes, they lied. It was horrible. It disrupted the unity. But is it the worst possible sin that's ever been done in the history of the church? No, it's not. So why did they die? The answer, I believe, is in that next phrase. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die after they sinned? It's because God is using this story as a powerful illustration for the rest of the church. And you might ask, what what is he trying to prove? What's the point of this? He is showing the seriousness of sin. What other passage have we studied has the early church had to deal with sin? Well, none. This is really the first time where they're dealing with a sin issue, a conflict in the church. And so God is using this story to have a powerful illustration for the church to understand the seriousness of their sin. That they lied not just to man, but to God. And so from this, the reaction is what God wanted. Great fear came upon all who heard it. This fear, sometimes we talk about the fear of God and it's a reverence or an awe. I think this is afraid, afraid. Like you're trembling, you don't know what to do. You are actually afraid of what is going to happen. And God has this story here so that the church would understand the seriousness of sin. It says in verse 6, The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And we'll talk a little bit about the timing of his burial in a moment when we talk about Sapphira. But consider this with me. Were Ananias and Sapphira Christians? Were they actual believers in Jesus Christ? Again, how could a believer be filled with Satan? Well, like I said, I don't think that means that they were spiritual or that they were demon possessed or anything, but rather that they were doing Satan's will. I do think they were believers for a couple reasons. First of all, look at Acts 4:32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The people talked about the people who are talked about in Acts and giving their possessions, we are told they are believers, okay? So the people who are talked about in Acts is giving up their property, we're told are actual people in the body of Christ. Secondly, I find it hard to believe that an unbeliever could lie to the Holy Spirit. How would an unbeliever lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's something you do when you're part of the body 
of Christ. Now, obviously, in Matthew, we're told that unbelievers can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But it seems to be something they would have done if they were a believer. They lied to the Holy Spirit. We see also in other passages, thirdly, that physical death sometimes does happen to believers who are caught in sin. If you think of 1 Corinthians with people who partook in the communion dinner um, unworthily, who hadn't confessed sin, it says, for this reason, some people sleep. And there's a lot of different opinions on that passage as well. But sometimes physical death does happen to believers in Christ who are in sin. Lastly, we talked about how can Satan fill the heart of a Christian. But yet I think the point for Ananias and Sapphira is this, that they should have known better. An unbeliever wouldn't have known any better. They're unsaved. They don't have the spirit of God. But Ananias and Sapphira should have been filled with the spirit, which you can only be if you're a Christian. But rather they were filled with Satan and sin. And so Ananias dies. Ananias dies. And this is a pretty big confrontation that happens here in Acts. But again, it's pointing out, it's telling us how serious sin is in the church. Now notice with me lastly, verse 7, verses 7 through 11. And we'll see an avoidable outcome. An avoidable outcome. Look with me at verse 7. After an interval of, interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now, I think this is probably my biggest question as I read this passage. And that is, how did his wife not know that her husband had died? And not only right away, but three hours, his wife didn't know. I mean, you know, what was she doing during that time? She obviously wasn't with him as they were worshiping, but where was she? Well, I don't know if I'll have anything that will necessarily satisfy or answer your question completely, but I will point out this. that Remember, in Bible times, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have text messages. I know that's shocking. They didn't have email. So she wouldn't have been able to get to have, they wouldn't have gotten a hold of her quite as easy as they could today. She was somewhere, obviously away from the action, away from where this all took place. We see in scripture that sometimes when an act of God takes place and it results in the death of a believer, that there's often a quicker burial. There's often a quicker burial that's performed. And because I had the question, why did they bury him so quick? I mean, wouldn't you want your wife there if you died? But Jewish custom was to bury the same day. And if she was unable to be found, for whatever reason, they would have gone ahead with the burial. But I actually think as we keep reading, we get the answer as to why Sapphira was not told by Peter and the early church. Look with me at verse 8. And Peter said to her, tell me whether or not you sold the land for so much. What's the difference between how Peter tests Ananias and how Peter tests Sapphira? Well, with Ananias, he's direct. He's saying, you lied. You lied to the Holy Spirit. 
And why did he do that? Well, a couple reasons. He was the head of the household. He was the man. He should have known better. He should have led his family better. But he'd already laid the money at Peter's feet. And in that action, he lied to the early church. At this point, I don't know if Peter knows how involved Sapphira is in this action. He's giving her the opportunity to tell the truth. So actually not telling Sapphira that her husband had died was really him trying to spare her, I think, from having to die. She would have just said that they lied about it or that they only sold it for so much. Perhaps she could have lived. Look at verse 8 and notice what she says. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Now, again, we don't get the actual number, but it is clear that she's lying. Even to this point, she is complicit with her husband in lying to the early church. And so what happens to her? Look at the rest in verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? He says, this isn't just something your husband did, but you guys actually worked together. You were to be his helper. You were to tell your husband, no, this isn't right. You should have told him not to lie. And you should have told the truth when we confronted you on this. But she was complicit. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirits of the Lord? Again, you lied to the Holy Spirit, Sapphira. You lied to the church. You are testing the spirit of the Lord. It's not something a believer should do. So then he says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. The same people who buried her husband would also bury her. And at that point, she realizes what is going on. She finds out where her husband is. She's probably wondering, hey, I haven't heard from my husband for a while. And then she realizes that her husband is dead, that he's already been buried. And it says in verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. There's so many things about this passage that are interesting. One of them to me is that where did they lay the money down? It was at the apostles' feet. And both of them, one after the other, die right at Peter's feet. The very place where their lie took place. The word that Luke uses for death is interesting. I don't know what your Bible says. My Bible says that they breathed their last. They literally had no more breath. It's a very unique verb, only used in Acts. And it's only used in Acts only three times. The other person who dies this way is Herod in Acts 12. When the young men came in, they found her and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I've grown up in church all my life. I've been a guy that's helped carry tables and chairs and all those things. I would hate to have been one of these young men who had to bury these two people after they died back to back. But yet these young men came in and they had to bury her as well. And the point, I think, of all of this 
is found in verse 11. It says, In great, what? Fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Peter didn't want Ananias and Sapphira to die, and honestly, Peter didn't have a choice in it. This was all the Spirit of God. God didn't want Ananias and Sapphira to die, but why did they? It was for the good of the church. It's because church discipline is about building up the body of Christ. When I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school, I hurt my knee. I was playing four square, I dove for the ball, and I hurt my knee. I tore two inches of cartilage. Now, because the injury was so just outlandish, uh, my family and I didn't think that I needed to go see the doctor. In fact, my dad spent that night trying to tell me to walk it off and, uh, you know, walk on it. Hopefully it'll get better. And I can remember kind of crying and being in pain. And, you know, my dad's a super generous guy, but none of us thought it was actually broken or anything until I finally went to the doctor. And the doctor told me, actually, that's the worst thing you could do for your leg is to pretend like everything is normal. So I had to have surgery on it. I was on crutches for about three or four months. None of that I wanted to do. None of that was easy for me to do. I had to give up walking and playing basketball and all those things. But if I wanted to use that part of my body effectively, if I wanted to ever be able to walk somewhat normal again, I needed to have that surgery. I needed to do something about my leg. And that's what church discipline is. We never want to have to do it. And it doesn't always mean that they're going to die. It doesn't always mean that somebody is going to be kicked out of the church. In fact, we pray that if we confront someone on their sin, that they would be restored back to the body of Christ. But why do we have all this in the first place? Why do we have church discipline as a church? It's because it's needed to help with the body of Christ. Do you realize that the holiness and the purity of the church is so important that God is willing to kill two believers in order to keep the rest of the church unified and pure? God cares about the holiness of his church. So much so that he uses a story to show us that. Now, what I find interesting is a couple things just as we close. The first time that church is ever used in Acts is found right here in Acts 5.11. In verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church. It's after this moment that they're recognized as the assembly, the body of Christ. It's literally translated called out ones. Now notice in verses 12 through 16, we'll study this next week. <coughs> but there are great signs and wonders that are done. And it says there are people who hear the gospel. There's people who are healed. There's people who, are, who hear the gospel. In verse 14, and more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. And why is that? Because the church takes care of the problems and of the turmoil that is going on inside of the body of Christ. And you know what? God blesses that. 
And God looks on the church and he adds to their number because they take sin seriously. How do we deal with sin inside of the church? This is not something any of us really want to talk about. It's not something that's easy for me to preach on. But how do we take care of sin in the church? First of all, we gather transparently. And what do I mean by that? We are open and honest with each other. You don't have to tell me every darkest secret that you've ever had in your life. But we're transparent with each other. And we're vulnerable. And we have that connective unity with one another. And we have relationships that enable us to say, hey, I think you might want to work on this. Have you been okay in this area of your life? Right with that, we ask questions lovingly. We ask questions not to try to judge or embarrass or call someone out, but rather because we love one another. Thirdly, we gently restore. Turn to Galatians 6.1. Schaefer mentioned this passage in Sunday school. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When you do have to confront someone on sin in their life, would you restore them in gentleness? Not harshly, not in a way that I said I told you so, but in a spirit that's gentle and loving. Fourthly, we forgive easily. Meaning that when a person does repent, we gladly welcome them back into the body of Christ. And lastly, we protect the gospel faithfully. It's our mission as a church. We love one another. We don't want to see anyone ever removed from the body of Christ. We pray that they repent and that they're restored back into fellowship with us. But there are times when someone's lifestyle is such that they continue to not repent of their sin. And so we say as a church, we have to protect the gospel. And we do not have confidence in that person that they are really a believer. And why is that? Because they won't repent of their sins. These are not easy things for us to talk about. They're not easy things for us to deal with and ask. But God helps his church. He blesses his church who takes sin seriously in the life of a congregation. Just like you may not want to take your medicine just like you may not like the effects that that medicine may have on you, how it tastes, how it makes you feel, we do it because we want to be healthy and we want to be restored. And in the same way, we confront each other on sin, even when that's hard sometimes, because we want what is best for the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these believers, Lord, and their great example of you, for their faithfulness in protecting the gospel, for their faithfulness in serving you. God, may we be faithful as your church to protect the gospel. May we be faithful to gently and lovingly restore those who have sinned back into fellowship. And God, may we rejoice as we see more sinners brought to repentance and to a relationship with you. In Christ's name, amen.